Welcome to Insurance Uncovered, the first podcast to bring you insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. Insurance Uncovered is produced by the National Association of Mutual Insurance Companies. Hello, everyone. I'm Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering the California Consumer Privacy Act, what you need to know about compliance issues for insurance companies, plus DOA, New Jersey's bad faith bill dies on the final day of session. And Indiana University's Fred Glass shares how his background in risk management makes him uniquely qualified for his current role as athletics director. Despite the flurry of activities during the final week of the 2018-2019 New Jersey legislative session, the New Jersey Insurance Fair Conduct Act came to an abrupt demise on January 13th. NAMIC helped lead an industry effort to defeat this expansion of private causes of action for extra contractual damages. Since the legislation was not sent to the governor, it must begin the process anew in the next legislative session. The first opportunity for this bill to receive committee consideration in the new legislature will be on January 27. NAMIC will continue its advocacy against any expansion of private causes of action and will continue to build a strong coalition in opposition. Meanwhile, on the opposite coast, it's alive and well. The California Consumer Privacy Act, that is, which went into effect on the first day of 2020. The most comprehensive privacy legislation to date in the United States imposes robust obligations on businesses across the country who collect information from California consumers. While the effective date of the CCPA is here, the law continues to evolve, meaning that compliance efforts for businesses are far from over. NAMIC's Jeff Baker says the future of the CCPA is still a little blurry. A lot of you are familiar with Assembly Bill 981 that was introduced last year as a two-year bill. Let's just say, uh, don't expect that to go anywhere this year. Um, and, and kind of the bottom line is, from what NAMIC understands and has been hearing, California legislators just don't feel like uh, the existing protections under Graham Leach Bliley go far enough. Uh, so just don't expect to see insurance companies exempted um, fully from all of CCPA. Uh, I think what you what you're doing now, um, don't expect that this is going to be temporary and you'll have you'll be able to withdraw. In fact, um, there is some uh, noise that some consumer advocates might uh, ask for bills to be introduced to expand CCPA obligations. Uh, there is still the ballot initiative, possibly more than one that has to do with enforcement. Uh, but the legislative bill uh, introduction deadline, for this year is late February. To learn more about the CCPA, check out NAMIC's recent webinar in the on-demand section of NAMIC.org. The webinar features an in-depth examination of the exemptions, which may apply to insurance companies, how those exemptions relate to personal information collected by insurance companies, considerations for how to deal with third parties, and an update on the regulations proposed by the California Attorney General. A new white paper by the American Association of Motor Vehicle Administrators discusses electric scooters and the scarcity of regulations and policies for this growing transportation option. NAMIC has long sought to see this lack of regulation addressed. The association testified at the National Council of Insurance Legislators 2019 annual meeting, reiterating its support of the emerging technology as well as the need for appropriate liability structures in the scooter space.
NAMIC and representatives from Bird and Lime co-hosted a meeting to discuss the insurance challenges and how they might be overcome by policy or legislative action. NAMIC is now working through its member-engaged policy development process to find solutions that meet the industry's needs in any insurance framework that is contemplated by the states. One of the great things about a career in insurance is the limitless opportunities. Beyond traditional insurance roles, there are many ways to apply a risk management background to other professions. On today's Unscripted, our Chuck Chamness talks with Indiana University's Fred Glass about how his insurance background made him uniquely qualified for his current role as the university athletics director. Well, today's guest on Insurance Unscripted is Indiana University Athletic Director Fred Glass. Now, you may be asking yourself, Chuck, why do you have a college athletic director on this great show? Well, Fred is also a lawyer. He's a longtime friend and outstanding uh, leader in Indiana in many ways. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But he also, in each of his roles, I would say he's had a significant uh, interest in and role in risk management. So, Fred, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate being invited. So maybe you can give us a little more. I talked about you know, you're the athletic director of a Big Ten school, Indiana University. Um, tell me a little about your background and what led up to that role. Well, I'll try not to go all the way back to being born in a log cabin, but okay. um, keeping, a, keeping a risk management uh, prism. Um, you know, I went to IU undergrad, uh, went to IU Law School in Indianapolis, and uh, then worked for a federal district court judge, which was a great uh, opportunity. But going to my first legal job was as, was as an uh, insurance defense uh, lawyer. So obviously, best sports, kind of lawyers. Best kind of lawyers, absolutely, representing the uh, the, the uh, industry. Um, and I learned a lot about uh, uh, risk management, just in, involved uh, in that area. Left there to uh, join Evan Bay when he became governor, and really, as we've we've talked about a number of. Uh, and you were his uh, chief of staff. That I, was I the joining his, part. I became his chief of staff, and a great opportunity at a young age. I was his chief of staff at 29 years old. Um, and age wasn't really held against you when the governor was elected at the age of 32, which didn't seem that crazy then and seems kind of ludicrous now. Yeah. But it was, Mayor but Pete disagrees, but Mayor Pete ahead. would disagree. Uh, and, and, uh, and I know you and I uh, come from opposite uh, political sides of the political aisle. Maybe getting closer. Maybe getting closer. <laughs> but this, uh, this isn't a partisanship comment, it's just sort of a power uh, comment. Uh, my party had been out of power for 28 years. And so between uh, being young and, 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 and not having uh, a lot of uh, people in front of you, there was a lot of opportunity mm -hmm. uh, for me. So at a relatively young age, I got to be the governor's chief of staff. Learned a lot about a lot of things, but including risk management, political risk, uh, public risk, uh, all those sorts of things. Um, when I left the governor's office, I interviewed with five law firms. I was fortunate to get offers from, from each of those five law firms. And the one I was almost ready to discard immediately was Baker and Daniels because they were running me around to interview with all these people. Other ones, other firms were just giving me offers, you know, the day mm -hmm. I, I interviewed. And then Baker and Daniels said, well, we don't want you to go back to litigation. We want to do this crazy thing and put you in our insurance area. And I'm like, insurance, man. I mean, you know, I mean, I, you know, I had sort of a aversion to ins insurance, you know, with all due respect to you and your listeners. A lot of regulation. A lot of, regu a lot of regulatory yeah, lot of, lot, and, and, you know, um, well, anyway, it, it wasn't at the top of my list until one of my former colleagues, Mark Moore, said, Fred, 
Western civilization was based on insurance and risk management, sharing the risk. We couldn't have, you know, built the ships to go across the sea. We couldn't have, you know, established the early uh, businesses. We couldn't have had the social contract without insurance, which was exciting. But then in a more practical perspective, it was, you know, business organizations, regulatory, um, uh, regulatory practice, litigation, all the stuff that I really liked you know, under one one specialty. Plus, Baker and Daniels was a recognized leader in that area, and to be able to work for icons like uh, Charlie Richardson made it really attractive. So to make a long story short, I went full scale into that, uh, represented both uh, regulators and the regulated um, with the insurance department and people appearing before it. And then as I moved into being athletic director, I consider one of the most, if not the most important part of my job, risk management, identifying a potential exposure uh, for the department and trying to do things to mitigate and hopefully eliminate that risk. Well, you've had an incredibly successful 12-year career. You're in the home stretch as you've announced your retirement, and uh, it will be, as they say, big shoes to fill for whoever replaces you starting this summer. But um, yeah, talk a little bit about what that is. What does it mean? I mean, IU Athletics, any athletic department, big time athletic department like we have, and we have a much bigger time one than the one you inherited back uh, in 2008. But um, what does it mean? What, what kind of risks do you face um, that you have to mitigate? And as a lawyer with your background, you're obviously very well uh, prepared for, the, for these challenges. Well, first of all, thank you for the congratulations on my retirement. I acknowledge that you're in the midst of, of, of uh, your retirement as well, which seems to constitute multiple victory laps. I, you know, Smaller shoes to fill. Yes, yeah, small. Yeah, right. Non-athletic Maybe shoes. we can get adjoining um, rocking chairs on a porch somewhere. I, I would, bet we I would can. enjoy that. Um, well, you know, probably for like a lot of your uh, members, um, the risks come in all shapes and sizes. You know, there's reputational risk. Um, if, if, if we have a, a, you know, a, a kid do something bad or a coach do something bad, I mean, it really reflects disproportionately upon Indiana University. Uh, you know, institutional risks, traditional risks like just injury and, and uh, um, loss uh, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I do think, well, I, I was a non-traditional candidate as athletic director, which is a nice euphemism for, you know, I had no idea what I was doing and probably wasn't qualified for the job. And I, and I paid a price for that in some ways because I, I didn't know a lot of the jargon and, 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 and the things, and, and that's not to be minimized. On the other hand, I think the fresh set of eyes more than compensated for not having been of that uh, world. And I think it enabled me to look at things a little differently, so I think we did things a little differently, like overtly observe that we need to deal with risk management. I think sometimes people that grew up in athletics, maybe they were coached did something else, they're more focused on, you know, Finding a coach that can, uh, you know, use the Tampa two or something, which you know that's got to be part of it. But but as the, as the steward of an organization, uh, I think I brought those sort of management skills, which which included dealing with um, uh, risk management and doing some things that people hadn't done before, like um, the Student Athlete Bill of Rights, which is in, of itself almost a risk management tool to identify and, and publicize what we're doing to, in some uh, interpretations. Uh, address and mitigate risk, right? right. Or uh, we've been um, one of the nation's leaders in progressive uh, policies regarding sexual assault and uh, preventing and mitigating uh, issues involving sexual misconduct. And 
you know, I've, I've encouraged my colleagues at the Big Ten to adopt these policies, and, and, they, and they haven't, which I think is wrongheaded, but I also think I'm too dumb to not know uh, what I can't do. If there's, maybe, there may be an extra negative in there, but um, the, the, the point is I think I've taken on some things that, that, that maybe people that grew up in the system wouldn't have taken on. Right. Asking the questions that uh, perhaps someone that's already in the system wouldn't think to ask, having observations that come from outside the system, and really thinking back to your taking the job, I remember having lunch in that period, whatever year it was when you were considering it, and you w brought up the idea. And, of course, I hadn't thought about it as, uh, you know, something that you would be interested in, but it made perfect sense. And when you look at big-time college athletics today, compliance you know, a different kind than our insurance companies face, but compliance is front and center. And having someone with legal skills, understanding, and appreciation of it clearly is uh, is part of the deal. So, yeah, I think it is. I mean, it did, as you know, uh, as my friend, it came out of left field. I didn't pursue it. I wasn't expecting it, and it seemed crazy um, until it didn't. And I thought it might make sense uh, uh, to do that. But I, but I I think it's a lot like your members. We are in a heavily regulated industry. Uh, and we have a list of five priorities that we hammer home all the time, and they are in order. Number one, follow the rules. That's what I call compliance, follow the rules. We don't just follow the rules we like. We don't just follow the rules that we think make sense. We don't just follow the rules that everybody else is following, right? This probably never happens with your members, but they may say, well, Chuck, why do I have to do that? XYZ's not doing that. PDQ's not doing that. Um, so, so you really have to inculcate a culture of complete uh, compliance. Uh, number two, we want our kids to be well in mind, body, and spirit. We want to take care of them, develop them personally, develop their, uh, them in, in terms of health. We want to achieve academically. In my business, that's graduating. We want to be excellent athletically. And then finally, we want to be integrated with the balance of the university. And are, do other athletic departments have that kind of clearly defined, you know, objectives? I mean, I can hear you, those, the way those roll off your tongue. That's a conversation you have with every coach, probably many athletes, parents of athletes. So, yeah, I think I, I, the short answer is I don't think they do. Uh, one of the things I learned in government politics is that if if you don't have a clearly articulated agenda, everybody else's agenda becomes your agenda. Um, the, the 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 urgent displaces the important, and if you don't have a really strong sense of who you are, then you're sort of in trouble before you even get started. And that was particularly true at Indiana, because when I came in 2009. Um, I was the fifth athletic director in eight years. We'd been through the Bob Knight firing, you know, not even a decade before. We'd been through the horrible death of Terry Hepner, who we thought was going to be the one to lead us to the promised land of football. And then the reason I was there, Kelvin Sampson's major infractions case, where we weren't graduating our kids and we were cheating. And IU people can put up a lot of ups and downs on the field of play, but, but they expect us to be a, an institution that graduates kids and plays by the rules. So what I felt like I had to do was create a spree, a core, something to rally around, and that was really the genesis of the of the five priorities. And they sound pedestrian and maybe Pollyannish, and you know who can argue against that? But but when you're making decisions about budget, hiring, firing, and you touch stone back to those, it's like, well, look, if if if, if following the rules is our number one priority for real, then we're going to do X instead of Y. Mm -hmm. Well. One last question as we're running out of time, and it's part of a question, part of a statement, part of a thank you, but Fred, you have really nice hair. Uh, and now if anyone, any of our listeners Google Fred, they'll see that nice hair. They will also probably come up with some hits that relate to St. Baldrick's. 
because Fred has, he lived through the experience with our son Joey and osteosarcoma back in 05. He's had other experiences with other friends who've lost kids and other friends as we all have have been lost to cancer. So very generously, and in fact, we haven't touched on it, but we know a major part of your job is raising money uh, for the university, for the athletic department, and you've done an exceptional job uh, in that as well. But you were um, kind enough and generous enough to agree to raise money for St. Baldrick, so I want to thank you for that. Uh, You're a great-looking bald head. You're a very valuable bald head in each time that you you shaved. I'm here with Lauren, who produces our podcast, a behind-the-scenes NAMIC staffer, who actually was there with us last time we did it live on TV. So, Fred, um, thanks for the St. Baldrick's uh, support. Thanks for your very valuable head and for your nice hair. Well, thank you, um, I think. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's been a very interesting discussion, and uh, it's good to hear that uh, risk management is being attended to at uh, one of the America's great public universities and athletic departments. Absolutely. Thanks, Chuck. I really appreciate being invited. Good luck in your retirement. Thank you. On the next Unscripted, Chuck talks with Carol Smith, historian at the Philadelphia Contributionship, about America's first mutual insurance company founded by Benjamin Franklin back in 1753. Chuck's conversation with Ms. Smith will be particularly timely as we celebrate NAMIC's 125th anniversary this year. And now, as part of a look back at the association's storied history and as part of our series of Mutual Minutes, NAMICO President and CEO Tim Sullivan reads a passage from A Century of Commitment, describing some major milestones that took place at NAMIC's 11th annual convention. The 1906 convention, the first held in New England, was also historic as the association changed its name. Canada participated for the first time. Both a Canadian and a woman were elected to office and the first mutual insurance manual was made available to the members. The manual was the first of its kind publication, summarizing the work of the committee in gathering statistics, legal notice of assessments, summaries of insurance laws, and other facts and figures important to mutual companies and associations. Its author recalls, in some states, there were no official figures. It was difficult to learn how many mutuals they had or whether they had any. In some states, they were sent to the agricultural department, along with fat hogs and prized pumpkins. In others, they were turned loose to shift for themselves, like cattle on the Western Plains. Today, this information is readily available to NAMIC members through the Compliance Resource Center's regulatory and legislative tracking system. NAMIC also releases its annual mutual factor report on the marketplace performance of property casualty mutual insurance companies. Listen for more Mutual Minutes in the weeks ahead on our journey to historic Boston for NAMIC's 125th annual convention. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We'll be back on February 5th with more insurance news and interviews. In the meantime, if you have a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. You can always send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a great day.